0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Uh, If you're following along with the notes today, you'll see that our topic is understanding salvation. (laughs) Understanding salvation. At the tail end of our study in the book of Ephesians, I made an observation during one of the sermons about the doctrine of salvation. And what I said was that salvation is a past, present, and future reality for the Christian. Salvation is a past, present, and future reality for the Christian. That is that salvation is about what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen in the life of of the believer. It's amazing to me that the symmetry that the Holy Spirit kind of knits together and even Joe's prayer before we started worship that just thanking God for all that he's done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do. And it was just amazing that those words were were prayed this morning when, I, when the Holy Spirit, I felt like, had led me to this message that salvation is a past, present, and future reality. It's about what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen in the life of the believer. It is about what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. So here's how we framed it. And this is, to be sure, this is an oversimplification, but but in simplest terms, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. If we are believers, if we are in Christ, we are being saved from the power of of sin in our day-to-day lives. And we will be saved from the presence of sin entirely one day in Christ Jesus. And so we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved in Christ Jesus from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. I said then when I made this Um, These these statements about the doctrine of salvation I said then that this topic deserves its own message And so that's what we're going to talk about today Actually, it deserves an entire series to really do it justice But we'll try to cover the basics in just one sitting, okay? Um, First, let me show you where this idea comes from in Scripture Um, I, it it took every bit of me to narrow down scriptures and not throw the 500 scriptures in that could support these points. I really narrowed it down to literally one passage per point, I think, or close. Um, uh, but I want to show you where this comes, this idea comes from in scripture. And then we'll get into some of the theological terms that are actually wrapped up in this comprehensive understanding of salvation. Cool, cool. Mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, there in your notes, it says this, for by grace, you have been saved. you see the past tense there? It's talking to believers, talking to those who are in Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, this is written. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God, do You see the present tense, have been saved, and now it says are being saved. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 says this, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And so we see that just in these three verses, that salvation in the scriptures is spoken of in past, present, and future tense. It's a comprehensive salvation. It covers my past, present, and my future. Our experience of salvation, then, let me just break down some of the, the- theology of this. And this is simple. Again, this is, uh, each one of these dives into So why I said it could be a series, because when we talk about any one of these next topics that we're going to talk about, could be teachings and series unto themselves. So many layers to this, but I'm going to just, I'm just going to give a simple overview. Cool? Our experience of salvation, then, needs to be understood as involving three, at least three glorious gifts. Now, pardon me for the cheesiness, but they're all going to rhyme. Don't worry about them because we'll come back to them. But, but they're all theological concepts, and that's this. Justification. Salvation involves justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, let me back up and give you a little bit of definition on each one of those. Justification is the gift by which our sins are forgiven, and we are declared righteous or in right standing with God. Okay? Sanctification is the gift by which we grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. I grow to become more and more like him in my day-to-day life. That is sanctification. And glorification is the gift by which we enter into the everlasting joy of heaven and our eternal inheritance that awaits us. It's vital that we understand all three of these dimensions and they're all encompassed when we talk about salvation. And the scripture references salvation in past, present, and future tense. So let's look at these a little bit closer real quick. Okay, number one, justification. Justification. When We talk about we have been saved from the penalty of sin. What are we talking about? We're talking about the doctrine of justification. Okay? Justification is this, and I think I gave the definition in your notes. Justification is the action or act of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. Righteous means to be in right standing with God, okay? So the act, justification is the action or act of, of declaring us righteous or making us righteous in the sight of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter three, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's so much in there. The temptation for me is to spend our morning just right here. But I'm 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 gonna try to go quickly, okay? Let's read verse 23 again because verse 23 presents us with a catastrophic problem. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we read that correctly and we understand it, that should level us and leave us utterly devastated. All of us Have sinned and as such have fallen short of the glory of God. No person is in right standing with God on their own and nor can we be made right with God on our own. There's no amount of good deeds we can do to earn right standing back. There's no amount of, of prayer and scripture reading and Bible, uh, Bible study and church attendance and good deed doing. And there's no amount of anything that we can do that's ever going to tip the scales back in our favor. Cause James two ten says, if we stumbled at one point, we're guilty of all of it. And so the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. It says every one of you, We've all sinned, everybody in this room, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that presents us with a very catastrophic problem. On my own, I am not right with God. And I can't be made right with God by any effort of my own. I am entirely dependent on God to do something because I can do nothing to fix that. So how then can we, can I be made justified? How can I be justified before God? How can I be made right with him? And the answer is found in verse 24. And believe me, after verse 23 and the darkness and, and, and devastation of verse 23, verse 24 shines like a brilliant diamond. How can we be justified? It says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified or made right with God by the grace of God, not by works he would say in Ephesians, lest any one of us would have an opportunity to boast about what we did to earn salvation. We cannot be justified by ourselves. We can only be justified or put right or made right with God by the grace of God. And his grace, this verse says, is a free gift to us. It says it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask, this brings up a huge question then, because this is a theology people have debated for a long time, and people actually get into really bad theology based on on things like this and the questions that this brings up. How can God just forgive those who put their faith in Jesus and yet still be a God of justice? who keeps his word that he would punish disobedience. If God just doesn't punish sin, then he didn't keep his word. And if he didn't keep his promises of judgment, then how can we trust his promises of mercy? How is he still just if he just turns a blind eye to sin and just says, ah, you know what? You're good. You're justified as some would teach. God can just forgive there is no he doesn't have to it's not what the bible teaches the bible teaches that god is a god of justice he has promised to 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 pour his wrath out on sin to condemn sin in the flesh to judge sin and so to just look at us and go you're justified in my sight by grace how does that grace come to us it is a free gift to us but it was not entirely free It cost God everything. How can God forgive and justify those who put their faith in Jesus and still be a God of justice? And verses 25 and 26 give us the answer. Let's read them again. Whom God, Jesus, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. How could God forgive David? How could God forgive Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses? How could he forgive Noah? How How could he still be just and just forgive them? This is because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over those former sins because he knew what was coming by faith. they entered into what was coming that they didn't even fully understand. And that is that sin was judged in the flesh. Wrath was poured out for the sin of the believer. It was poured out on Jesus. said it was to show his righteousness, verse 26, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, here's what this verse just said, these two verses. It said, because God condemned sin in the flesh of his son, because Christ died a sacrificial atoning death on the cross in our place, bearing our sins, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That doctrine will blow your mind when you get it. The doctrine of the imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us that our sins were imputed to him and he bore them and he became sin for us and was crucified and condemned in the flesh and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It says this shows that God is both just to punish sin and the justifier of those who have faith in him. How can he justify us and still be just because of the cross? Without the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is no justification for the Christian. We are not made right with God. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, as scripture would say. So the Bible does not teach multiple theories of the atonement teaches that Jesus Christ died in our place as a substitute. A propitiation. What is that word? It says God put forth his son. This was God's plan. God put forth. Look at that again. Okay, verse 23 into verse 23 says that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 24, I'm sorry, verse 24. That is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What's a propitiation? That's a really fancy, kind of awkward word. It carries the idea of appease. The word of propitiation carries the idea of, of atonement for sin and appeasement or satisfaction of anger or wrath. So those who like to pretend that God never gets angry or that the verses about God's wrath are just Old Testament, we've misunderstood them, are missing entire chunks of the New Testament that teach that Jesus didn't just die on the cross to show us he loved us. He died on the cross in our place, bearing our sins as our substitute to satisfy the holy and justified wrath of God against sin. That's what that word propitiation means. It means that he atoned for our sins and appeased the justice and wrath and holiness of a perfect God. The wrath of God was satisfied and our sin has already been judged in Christ. We have been crucified with Christ if we are believers. Your sin has been imputed to him and his righteousness has been imputed to you. So let me just make this clear. Here's why this matters. Because it's not just that God lets us off the hook and doesn't require payment. It's that payment has been made. Amen. So God is just to justify you if you are in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? We, we go, I'm afraid of justice. I don't want to get justice. I want to get grace. Listen, because of grace, justice for the Christian is forgiveness. Do you understand? We do want justice because justice was poured out on Christ, right? Because sin was judged in the flesh. We have justice and we have judgment. And so now the just thing for God to do for those who are in Christ is to offer no condemnation and forgiveness. Let me explain why. Actually, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says this, written to believers. I don't think it's in your notes, but write it down because you're going to live by this verse. Live by it. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. Therefore, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to me. If both Jesus and... Christ, if Christ and the Christian are both made to pay for the same sin, that would not be just. This is what scripture is saying. This is what it means to be justified. Justice has been done. Okay? For the Christian to get justice, if we are in Christ, sin has already been judged in Christ. And by our union with Christ, that is, our sin has been judged in him. And so there remains now no judgment for sin for the Christian because it's already been poured out on Christ. That will set you free. That will set you free. You want justice if you're in Christ Jesus because justice for you is acquittal because the payment's already been made. I and mean, God will not exact payment from Christ and from you who are in Christ for the same sin because God is just and the justifier of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a born again child of God who has repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins have been paid for. Amen. You are justified and you are in right standing with God. That's what we mean when we say you have been saved from the penalty of sin. Number two, the second and present ongoing work of salvation is sanctification. Sanctification. To sanctify something is to set it apart for special use or purpose. That is to make holy or sacred. Okay? Think of, actually here's a great analogy. Okay? I have sanctified my toothbrush for use only in my mouth. I don't use it to scrub the dishes. It is set apart for special use or purpose. Right? Once that that my toothbrush is sanctified, that's what it means. Set apart to be used only for my mouth. Only for this purpose. I do not use it to scrub my shoes, and then use it to scrub my mouth. It is set apart. So to be sanctified then refers to the state or process of being set apart by God for God and made holy to be used for his purposes only. That is growing in holiness, growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ, letting our heart and our character and our our lives be shaped and refined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So listen. The power of grace, and this is where so, so, so many of us miss grace. The power of grace is not that it simply saves us from the penalty of sin. It does. Praise Jesus. That's justification. We've been justified by grace. Grace. But the power of grace is not that it simply justifies us or saves us from the penalty of sin, but also that it empowers us now to overcome sin and grow in likeness of Jesus Christ in our day-to-day lives. We have been sanctified, set apart by God for special use, and yet we have a part to play in our ongoing sanctification, our ongoing growing in holiness, and being coming more like Jesus. Hebrews 10, 14, I don't think is in your notes either, but write it down. Hebrews 10, 14 says this, powerful. It says that he, God, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Did you catch that? You are credited as holy before him as you are being made holy before him. Do you see these two working together right now? Do you see justification and sanctification happening? You are made right with God and you are being made right with God. You are holy and you are being made holy. So how do we participate in our ongoing sanctification? Romans chapter six, verses 15 through 23 says this. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Here's a question. You go, I receive my salvation by grace. It's all about grace. So... I can go ahead and go on and sin and live however I want, right? I'm telling you right now, I think this is where a vast majority of Western Christians live. I, I prayed the magic prayer. I got, I got my get out of hell free card. Grace came and forgave me for all my sins. I'm good to go. Now how I live doesn't matter. There's grace. There's grace for me. And Paul addresses it right here in Romans 6. What then? Should we sin because we're not no longer under the law but under grace? He says, by no means, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the person, of the one whom you obey, either slaves of sin, which leads to death, or or slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from your sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, listen to this, so now present your members, present your body, your who you are, as slaves or instruments to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Amen. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? How'd that benefit you? For the end of those things is death. No matter how good it starts, the end of them is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get now leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, he says, listen, you've been set free from sin, not so that you can keep sinning. You've been set free from sin so that you can now begin the process of being sanctified. So the grace of God that forgives us is the grace of God that empowers us to grow in holiness. It's one and the same. We are to present our members, our physical bodies, and our lives as instruments of righteousness. We're to grow in right living. The goal isn't just to get a get out of the hell free card, but to be actually daily more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. More and more like him every day is the prayer. This is sanctification. And so the current concept of Christianity as something that produces no effect on my life or my character is a non-Christianity, right? It's a Christianity in name tag only and not in truth or effectual power. True Christians have been saved from the penalty of sin and are being saved from the power of sin. Amen? Third, So we've talked about the past work of salvation, the present work of salvation. And now third, we get to glorification. Glorification. Glorification refers to a glorified or more splendid or perfected form of something. Okay? Think of something in its glorified form or most perfected or most splendid form. Think of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with, a, with three of his disciples, right? And he goes up on the mountain, and what happens upon this Mount of Transfiguration? That Jesus was glorified, or transfigured and seen in a glorified form before them. So think of that when you think of glorification, Okay? Think of, he was seen in all of his glory, and they were like, "Ah!" and then Peter had to like put his foot in his mouth and be like, let's build three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses one for Elijah. It was like, Peter, stop, man. You don't have to talk. Just, (laughs) Just stand in awe of the glory of God, transfigured before them. That means Jesus was in some form when he walked with them throughout regular, the course of everyday life and ministry, and yet on this mountain, something happened, and they saw him in a glorified state. He was transfigured before them, and they saw him in his glory. They were awestruck. There will be a glorification. Here's what the scripture teaches there will be a glorification of Christ before all men, not just before three on a mountain. There will be a glorification of Christ before all men. Every eye will see, every ear will hear, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be a glorification of Jesus Christ before all men. And scripture teaches that there will be a glorification of the saints. We will enter into a glorified state. Yes. That means that for the Christian, there still remains yet... An aspect of salvation that we have not yet experienced, but that we look forward to and eagerly long for. Things are not yet as they will be. Things are not yet as they should be. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. And I'm going to try to go through this really quickly. I can see we are hitting it, but this, I encourage you to lock in right here, because this is so important. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. That is, for who hopes what he already has? For what he already has. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, do not yet see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we don't know what to pray for as we ought to. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you see the comparison? Present suffering, future glory. Do you see it? Because the scriptures couldn't be more clear. And we see this everywhere around us. There's pain. And there's suffering. And there's disasters. And there's pestilence. And there's heartache. It's around us. It surrounds us everywhere. But scripture says we can remain hopeful in the middle of present suffering. We have a hope. The doctrine of glorification teaches us that all of our present suffering, no matter how bad, all of our pain, all of our frustration, our heartache and disappointment will seem as nothing when compared with the glory that we will experience in the age to come. Do you see the promise there? The scripture doesn't deny the reality of our present struggle. Now stay with me because we're gonna cover all that kind of... A lot of what this topic has to say, but I want to just kind of hit this first. The scripture doesn't deny the reality of our present struggle. I mean, it it just takes two eyes to look into the world, into my life, into my family, and into the scriptures and see there's suffering. It's a reality of our present time. Jesus said in the world, You will have tribulation, it is a reality of our present age. And and it's it's affected creation. Verses 19 through 22 says that creation is subjected to futility. Groaning, it says, even until now, even until the present time, creation is still groaning. Listen, you've never seen a sunset the way God originally intended it. Never. You've never seen the animal kingdom the way that God originally designed it. Never. We've seen muted creation. We've seen creation subjected to futility. The most beautiful thing you've ever seen in all of creation right now is creation with the wet blanket on it, at best. It's creation not in its most vibrant and full of life and set free from futility. It says, even until now, creation is groaning and eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Waiting for the moment of glorification where Christ Jesus is glorified and his sons and daughters are with him in glorified state, and the whole world sees and creation is set free from its bondage and its futility. Verse 23, right after spelling all that out, says, And not only creation, but we ourselves. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. We have the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, as the first fruits, that is, as a down payment on the glory that is to come. Okay? And yet we are described here as groaning inwardly and waiting eagerly. Waiting for what? For glorification. For our adoption as sons and daughters. You go, wait a minute. Ephesians said we have been adopted. Yes, you were adopted. We're talking about the consummation of our adoption. Are you yet in the physical presence of God? No, we're talking, what do they call it? When, they, when you've adopted somebody, you've begun to, okay, I've adopted you, but I don't have you. I haven't picked you up yet. Imagine you're traveling to another country to adopt a child. Adoption papers have been signed. It's legal. It's done. You have been adopted. We're talking about gotcha day. We're talking about one day, the, the truth that I know is mine as a, as a theological reality that should impact my heart and my life, will one day be a physical reality. I'm holding my father. I don't, I no longer see through a glass darkly or dimly. It's no longer limited. It's no longer muted. It's no longer subject to futility. One day, oh, the curse is completely gone, eradicated, and I am holding my father who loves me and adopted me. It says we eagerly wait for that day. So we're eagerly waiting for adoption as sons and, it says, the redemption of our bodies. And let me just say this. We don't yet experience fully glorified and redeemed We get colds and broken bones and suffer aches and pains and read through glasses and experience entropy like everyone and everything else, okay? One day, though, the promise is that our bodies will be completely glorified and every ounce of imperfection will be completely eradicated. That's the promise of scripture. This passage couldn't be more clear. Our present hope is future glory. And it says, this is the hope that we were saved into. This, what it just described. Groaning inwardly, waiting eagerly for adoption and the redemption of our bodies. And it says in verse 24, for in this hope, this present hope of future glory, in this hope we were saved. And and then it actually, just to spell it out, says now, who hopes for what he has already? That's what it says. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we... But if we hope for what we don't yet see, what we don't yet have, we wait for it with patience. Now, this is the Christian hope. It's not your best life now. It's the best is yet to come. And we wait patiently for it. One day sorrow will be entirely removed and we will experience what it's like to live without the presence and effects of sin and the fall. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and will one day be saved from the presence of sin. Do you see that? Now, this doesn't mean, I've driven this point home. Now, let me me pull it back for just a second and very much clarify that this doesn't mean that we just sit back and wallow in sorrow and embrace suffering as if it's a virtue unto itself and never pray for God to do the miraculous. Far from it. Scripture holds these truths together. It says, yes, your present reality, there's present suffering, you're hoping in and waiting for eagerly future glory, and then he says, pray, pray. You have the first fruits. You have foretastes of coming glory in the Holy Spirit that I've given to you. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us as believers, and it... Tells us here, he's been given to us as the first fruits. That is, he's like the down payment of what's to come. He's the foretaste of future glory that we're talking about. And so we pray boldly as Jesus taught us to pray. Our God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So any theology of suffering that leads you into hopelessness that says, oh, present suffering's a reality, I might as well sit back, wallow in it, embrace it, and just eek, grit my teeth and eek my way through this life is ignoring large chunks of scripture also. Scripture does not deny the presence of the impact of the effects of sin and the fall in our lives, in our own hearts, from others. We are impacted by sin and the fall all the time. Every time you're, uh oh, oh, my back hurts. That's because of the fall. That's because of sin. And yet we have the Holy Spirit as a first fruits, as a down payment, as a foretaste of future glory. Why are people tasting future glory more? When we start to develop theologies that make excuses for why we're not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, we're in danger. Do you understand? We, it's like we swing the pendulum one way or the other, and we go, and we go, oh, um, no suffering. Everything's great now. You have it all now. Everything, you get it all now. If you just have enough things, just get it all right now. Or we go, no, suffering's a reality. What would you even pray for? Just pray, the oh, Lord, it must be your will that I'm going through this, and I'm just going to embrace the suffering. Don't embrace suffering. Embrace Christ. In suffering. If you're suffering, don't embrace your suffering. Embrace Christ in your suffering. And pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you might see and get and experience a foretaste of the coming glory. When you see somebody that's sick, and if you bring me somebody who's sick, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay my hands on them, and I'm going to pray to the God who can do all things, that he would give us a foretaste of future glory. Lord, heal this body from head to foot I pray, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus Christ who can do all things and for you nothing is impossible. And why would you do that? So that your name would be glorified in all the earth. So that we would taste, that we would get a taste, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. We would have a foretaste of the coming glory. Verses 26 and 27 says the Holy Spirit has been given to us as as first fruits and given to help us pray. Even when we don't know what to pray for, it says praise for us with groanings that are too deep for words. So this doesn't mean that we just sit back and embrace suffering. It just means we aren't surprised by the reality of present trials. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 are not in your notes, but write that down because Peter says this. Why are you surprised at the fiery trial that's come upon you as if something strange has happened to you? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Why are you surprised by trials? We're not surprised by trials. Why? Because we know that things are not yet as they will be. They're not yet as they should be. There's more to come. This is the promise of God and the present hope of the Christian is that of all the glorious benefits that we have and we do have and we experience right now, there's more to come. Every glorious thing you've ever experienced in blessing and healing and revival and anything in your heart that's been glorious up until this point has simply been a first fruits yeah. on what's coming. It's just been a foretaste. Yeah. It's just a foretaste. Have you ever had moments that moved you to tears because they were just so beautiful? Yeah. Looking at, I have these moments sometimes when I'm looking at my kids or I'm playing with them. And I'm literally like, I get moved to tears and I go, God... Like right now, everybody's happy and healthy, and so I'm getting a foretaste. I'm getting a foretaste, and they're playing, and we're laughing, and it's like amazing. Everybody's singing, and oh, it's just me, these, and we're being goofy, and we're, and I go, oh, it's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, and I go, this moment's perfect. Then I go, hang on, this is just a foretaste. It's just a foretaste. Can you how amazing it's going to be that if the most amazing thing you've ever experienced now is just a muted, foretaste, pre-screening version of what's to come? It's just a trailer. This is the promise of God and the hope of the Christian. Let me show it to you in one more passage because I just want to be very clear that I'm not just cherry picking one verse. I could have done a hundred, but let me give you two, okay? First Peter chapter one, verses three through seven. I'll try to plow through this one quick. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. I love that. You were saved into what? It says in this hope we were saved in Romans eight. And in first Peter one, it says, you, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope. If you're born again, if you're saved, child of God, you are saved into hope. Hope is your birthright. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Where is it? Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, look at this, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance that's coming. Is it ours now? Yes, in trust. Is it all ours now, in in experience? No, we have the first fruits. We have a down payment. Imagine a five-year-old that got an inheritance, okay? Imagine a five-year-old that got $10 million inheritance, okay? And yet, I can't give a $10 million inheritance to a five-year-old, like, right now. So, I'm just using human terms. It's not a perfect analogy, but stay with me, okay? But that that five-year-old maybe gets $100,000 a year and for care and for this and for that and can buy all kinds of toys with his guardians and whatever, okay? And yet when he turns 18, because even when he's five, the whole inheritance is his in trust, right? It's in, it's in his account. And he gets payments now. They're down payments on what's coming to him when he turns 18. This is the biblical picture of what we have. We have an inheritance, unfading Imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. And we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? Foretastes of coming glory. Born again into a living hope for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have been saved, we are being saved, and salvation is ready to be revealed. We rejoice in this hope, even in the midst of the various trials and testing of our present time. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, paints the Christian as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're going to encounter sorrows. We're going to have moments, yet always rejoicing, because we know who and what is ours in Christ Jesus. The day is coming when every ounce of suffering and sickness will be completely eradicated from our presence. There will be nothing as small as an ache or pain and nothing as large as cancer. There will be nothing like that in our presence. Scripture's clear. Revelation 21, if you just want to be encouraged, every tear will be wiped away. No more sorrow. No more cancer, famine, disease, violence, suffering. Those are former things. In the meantime, what do we do? We hold fast in faith. We hold fast. We wait patiently. We hope expectantly. And we pray boldly for the miraculous, for miraculous foretaste of the glory that is to come. Because that's what we're told to do too. why was this message even important? Why is it important to us in our lives? Why is it important that I understand past, present, and future Uh, experiences of salvation? If I don't understand justification, that I have been justified in Christ, that I have been made right, I will spend my life trying to earn right standing with God or self-righteously thinking I am earning it when I'm doing good. If I don't understand sanctification, I will live a cheap, non-Christianity that thinks I'm saved because I prayed a prayer once, even though I've never grown spiritually or exhibited the fruit of the spirit or grown in Christ like this. And if I don't understand glorification, I'll live in frustration that bad things happen, and bad things happen to good people. And may and I may even abandon the faith when suffering comes or tragedy strikes because it didn't work, or because God didn't hold up his end of the deal, or God didn't do his part, or I can't tell you how many times as a youth pastor, as a, 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 you know, on staff at the church, I can't tell you how many times teens and adults, like I've seen people walk away from their faith, why? Because it didn't work. What was supposed to work? God was supposed to give you all the goodies and keep away from you all the bad stuff. Too many people <laughs> have this idea that to follow Jesus means, oh, he's going to eradicate all my suffering now. Or, if I don't understand glorification, I'll be buried by condemnation and sorrow because I didn't do my part, because it's my fault somehow that tragedy struck. It's my fault that my child was diagnosed with mental illness, or it's my fault that my wife died of cancer, or it's my fault somehow if I just dealt with the sin in my life or had enough faith, or because God was willing and I didn't. Do you understand how that can bury you with condemnation? If you don't understand that, no, we are living in a place that experiences the effects of the fall. And we pray for foretaste of future glory, but we hold out hope. We eagerly long for and expect and wait for glorification. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and we will be saved from the presence of sin. Let's close with the rest of Romans 8, 28 verses 39, uh, verse 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Listen, let me pause real quick. You know what that's saying? Who can bring a charge against you? Who can accuse you of anything? You have been justified before God. That's what he's saying. This is the conclusion of it. You let accusations roll right off your back no matter how true they are are they're paid for He says so who can bring a charge against you it says christ jesus is the one who justifies Amen. only jesus can condemn you and he's justified you that's what he just said it is god who justifies who is to condemn christ jesus is the one who died and more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of god who is indeed interceding for us no law no not only is he not condemning you he's praying for you Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Wait a minute, does it mean God doesn't love me if I'm experiencing suffering? No, no, no. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. I need to know because I'm being regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. I need to know if God still loves me because I'm experiencing suffering. Maybe I did something wrong. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yes, Jesus loves you. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would that you would speak to us, stir us, challenge us, comfort us, encourage us. Lord, I pray that we would wrestle um, in the spirit with your words and come to a clear understanding of who you are. all you've done, of all you're doing, and all of all you will do, Lord. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that we have been saved from the penalty of our sin, that we are being saved from the power of sin in our lives, and that we will one day be completely saved and set free from the presence and effects of sin. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.